The Army recently appointed its first-ever lead trial counsel, a Senate-confirmed one-star general. Her job will be to prosecute cases of murder, rape, and sexual assaults. It's all part of a new legal framework for such cases in the military. Joining me with analysis of what this all means, former Air Force Judge Advocate General and founding attorney of JAG Defense, Grover Baxley. Mr. Baxley, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And we mentioned the Army, but this is something that all of the military armed services are doing? That's correct. The National Defense Authorization Act of 2022 required that every service appoint a one-star JAG to serve as the special trial counsel. And so every service will have this office set up. And was this kind of a compromise between having those types of cases, murder, rape, sexual assault, taken out of the military chain altogether versus the way it was done before? Is this a middle ground type of measure? That's exactly what happened. There's been a big push from certain members of Congress to change the entire military justice system to shift the authority to prosecute criminally under the UCMJ all military offenses from commanders, that is what we call convening authorities, those are senior officers, flag and general officers, depending on the service, and shift that into a civilianization, so to speak, of our military justice system where everything is handled by civilian prosecutors. And what would the implications of that had been? What did the military not like about that general idea of just taking it out and civilianizing it, as you say? Well, military commanders traditionally have been responsible for upholding morale, cohesion, readiness for duty, and military effectiveness of their units. And from their perspective, a big part of that is maintaining good order and discipline through the use of the UCMJ. And what they were concerned about is that if that authority is withheld from them, that it will have a negative effect on their ability to command their units. So then what was the problem, I guess I'm asking you to look at it from the people's point of view that were pressing for this, with respect to these types of cases? It was not the cases themselves, but in some instances, the rank of the people committing them? Or was it something about this type of violent case itself that was the problem? There has been a growing concern by lawmakers and the public that the military was not, quote-unquote, tough enough on sexual assault allegations. And they are concerned that military commanders are not prosecuting cases aggressively enough, that that they are not obtaining enough convictions, and that as a result, sexual assault remains a rampant problem in the military. Whether that's true or not, that's the concern that led to these changes. Again, the initial idea was to withdraw all prosecutorial authority from commanders and put it in the hands of civilians Instead, what will happen is that only certain covered offenses, as they're called, will be withheld from commanders, and they will include things like sexual assault, murder, and various other serious offenses. Minor offenses, traditional military offenses, will remain within the purview of the commanders. And from your active duty days, what was your perception of how these types of cases were disposed of? Did it seem biased one way or the other from your experience? Again, this is what I refer to as a perceived sexual assault crisis in the military. And it, it keeps going round and round where civilians are unhappy with how military commanders are handling sexual assault cases. They want more prosecutions. So as a result, commanders are taking weaker and weaker cases to trial to satisfy these lawmakers. And as a result, there are fewer and fewer convictions and the conviction rate goes down and it's a vicious cycle. These lawmakers believe that withdrawing that authority from the commanders and putting it in the hands of a career prosecutor will increase the conviction rate in the military. 
A lot of people like me think the opposite is true, that these seasoned prosecutors will be looking at these cases and not taking them to trial as much as the commanders were. The reason for that is the commanders were doing what the lawmakers wanted because at the end of the day, the commanders want to make sure they continue to get promoted. And to make the lawmakers happy, they were taking every case, every allegation that was made of a sexual assault nature and prosecuting it. And as a result, the conviction rate was very, very low. We're speaking with Grover Baxley. He's former Air Force Judge Advocate General and founding attorney at a firm, JAG Defense. And how do you envision this working now in practice? I mean, the special counsels that have been appointed in the military branches are nevertheless uniformed officers of that branch. So will they have no connection to the JAG offices and somehow have an independent counsel office? But don't they have to worry about their own kind of future careers, too, in the military? I mean, they're only one star. They may want two, three or four. That's a great point, and it's a question that I think has yet to be answered as to whether or not this is going to be a terminal position for the JAGs that accept it. As you say, it's not just the one star. That's a very high-ranking position, but theoretically, these are individuals that were on a career track to potentially be two or three stars, being the highest rank that a JAG can attain. And so, yes, there could still be political ramifications for these individuals if lawmakers are not satisfied with the conviction results that they obtain. And what will be the mechanism, do you envision, by which the cases will come to them? Something happens, someone makes an allegation of rape, sexual assault, whatever the covered offense might be. And by the way, what are the covered offenses? There's a long list. I mean, I I don't think your listeners are going to want me to list every article under the UCMJ, but they include murder, manslaughter, rape, other sexual misconduct, domestic violence, stalkings, and sexual harassment is one that's a little bit uh, up in the air right now. All right. So getting back to the question of how this will operate, I mean, if an allegation is made, then it will face a fork in the track going one way to the JAG, one way to the special counsel. Who decides that? What will happen is if there's an allegation involving any covered offense, the former convening authority, that is the senior officers of that command, will be required to forward the allegation and any report of investigation to the Office of the Special Trial Counsel the convening authority, these senior officers will be allowed to offer input as to what they think should happen with the allegation, but ultimately it will be up to the Office of the Special Trial Counsel to determine whether or not charges are going to be preferred and referred against the accused. Will the special counsels report up functionally through the JAG, or do they have a separate reporting function? They will be reporting up to TJAG, the Judge Advocate General for each service. Right. So in some sense, they're still connected to the JAG colleagues. Correct. Wow. I'm trying to picture in my mind then what's really going to change here with respect to defendants and plaintiffs. Well, what's really been flipped on its head is previously, if there was an allegation made, it would be up to the convening authority, that is a flag or a general officer, as to what to do with the allegation. And they alone had the authority to do that. They would accept advice from the JAG, But that was the extent of it. The JAG could give them advice, and ultimately it was the commander's decision. And what's been, again, flipped on its head now is it's just the opposite. Now the JAG will actually, this Office of the Special Trial Counsel, a JAG, will be making the decision. The convening authority can make recommendations and offer input, but ultimately the JAG decides what will happen with the case. In other words, they created sort of a super JAG with more decision-making discretion than the standard JAG here. Correct. 
All right. How do you think it's going to work? I think you may have stated that already, but maybe just to reiterate, do you think this will be successful? And I guess the question is, what is successful? That, that's, that, <laughs> that's exactly right. What, what is successful? If, if, the, if success is defined as higher conviction rates and or more convictions, because I think that's ultimately what lawmakers are looking for, are more convictions, I think you're going to see just the opposite, because now you have a seasoned JAG, a seasoned lawyer, evaluating the merits of the case and deciding whether or not the evidence is sufficient to obtain a conviction. And what we see as district attorneys acting, you know, um, where they're evaluating whether or not they can get get a conviction, and that's all they're focused on. And they're not worried about, well, if I don't prosecute it, I'm not going to get promoted. I think you're going to see fewer cases go to trial. You may see a higher conviction rate, but I think you're going to see fewer cases and fewer convictions overall. Grover Baxley is former Air Force Judge Advocate General and founding attorney of JAG Defense. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, and on a obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. 
you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly 
revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.